0: Approach and speak unto the people, shall say unto them, Here, O Israel, ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble, neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Amen. How many are thankful for the word today? Amen. Amen. We're going to talk about the good fight a little bit today. The good fight. Amen. One more time. Give somebody a high fives. Some and they look good in God's house. Amen. As far as I could tell, doing some small amount of research this week, the United States has officially declared war 11 times. According to the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Congress has the exclusive power to declare war. The last time America declared war, World War II. The Korean War, the war in Vietnam, the extended campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq were never stamped with congressional declarations of war. This means very little though to the large numbers of people that have been affected by the conflicts and interventions that American soldiers have fought in and lost their lives in around the world. Whether or not it was ever stamped officially a war doesn't mean a whole lot by those that were involved and were affected. America has been involved in more than 100 such conflicts since the birth of our nation. It is said that America is a nation birthed by people fighting and longing for freedom and a place for people from around the world to come looking for freedom. But that freedom to become, I say the freedom to become, the freedom to become first required their ability to win they could not become what they longed to become until there was a victory and america could never become what they dreamed what they envisioned what they hoped for without a victory so the american revolution or The United States War of Independence from 1775 to 1783. The number of deaths is very hard to classify. There are wide-ranging historical numbers of how many people actually lost their lives in this battle. A study of the revolution's success leaves more questions than answers. Small amounts of farmers, untrained and lightly organized and only able to fight for short periods at a time before they had to go home, take care of the crops, go home and reap the harvest. This band of uh, of army, if you could call it that, should not have been able to hold back the much larger organized and well-trained British army. Each battle has its own unique story of how it is won. Each one has interests and has moments that are hard to explain. Many of them make little sense strategically and they leave a confusing outcome to how we gained victory at all. The British had expected a quick military victory followed by political control. In the end, it was the British that were left with doubts and questions. The biggest question perhaps to them was, how do you defeat an army that will not fight on your terms. This is the question that they ultimately had to go over. They had to have meetings and discussions and thoughts and get really smart people and military people into a room. But at the end of the day, they just threw their hands up in the air and said, how are we supposed to defeat them if they will not fight us the way we want them to fight us? If they will not line up across the field and just let us shoot at them while they shoot at us. If they will not just march in file to a drum into a hail of bullets and cannon fire. How are we supposed to beat them when they pop up out of nowhere? They take some shots and run over the next hill. How are we supposed to defeat them when they're never in the place that we thought they were supposed to be in? And they never do what we thought they were supposed to do. And today I want us to understand something about the battles that exist. There is a real enemy of your soul. Oh, hallelujah. There is a real enemy of your soul that has a designed plan. Jesus clearly states his role, Jesus' role in our lives in John the 10th chapter. And in verse 9, when he says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. But then Jesus clearly defines for us Satan's activity. In the next verse, he says, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy, to which Jesus follows up this reality with one that is faith-building. In John 10, 10, and 11, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And I think we could take five seconds and give God some praise this morning. We have a God that tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you come through me, there is salvation and there is hope. We also have a God that tells us very clearly that there is an enemy of our soul. That it's not all just one-sided, but there is that anti-Christ spirit, if you will. There are those who would work against the salvation of those who see Jesus and Human battles demand a certain level of preparation, even if you are outnumbered and outgunned and you know you are. You still prepare whatever you have. If you are going to die, the phrase is, I won't go down without a fight. Even if you don't have much to prepare, you prepare what you have. If you don't have much defense, you put the defense in the most strategic place you can put it. If you don't have much weaponry, you get all of it ready to go and make sure it is in working order. Because it is the spirit of the battle that says, I'm not going down without a fight. As brave as that is. As much as I agree with that, and I understand our human drive, and I understand the spirit of humanity... And I believe even to a degree that that is God-given inside of us and that there are some people here today that need to take that ideology out of the physical realm and bring it into the spiritual realm. And I wish to God that somebody would not leave this place today until they said, I will not go down without a fight. I'm not leaving the house of the Lord until I come to receive, hallelujah, Till I receive what I come for. I'm not walking out those doors until something has changed in me. I may have walked in here weak, but I refuse to walk out of here weak. I will walk out strong and and renewed I will walk out of here with a confidence that can only come through Jesus Christ as much as I like that mentality in our in our our spirit in in our human thinking I think we need to understand today there is another view it still requires that we fight not just maybe in the ways that we think Proverbs 21 and 31 is an interesting little verse. It says, The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. But safety is of the Lord. You will find over 180 Bible verses that refer to horses in the Old Testament. So they were well known to the Jews. Horses was not some sort of a weird thing that they had never heard of before. So the question begs, why did they never use horses to defend themselves against the cavalry and war horses of their enemies? Why do we not see horses as a major part of their warfare when they existed, when they knew what they were, but they don't seemingly use them? The answer is found in Deuteronomy 17. In the 16th verse it says, But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. The Lord speaks to them, and he gives this command, if you will, I want you to not deal in horses. I don't want you to multiply horses unto yourself. I don't want you to make great armies of horsemen. And the primary reason that God forbade the Israelites from owning and multiplying horses was that it would have forced them to correspond and have reliance upon Egypt. Egypt was the premier provider of horses in the Middle East at the time. Egypt was where everybody got their horses from. Egypt was known as the place where the good war horses could be bred and could be bought. Yes, the same Egypt that they had been slaves to for 430 years. Yes, the same Egypt that God miraculously delivered them from. But as generations die and man begins to think himself to be self-sufficient and relies less upon divine assistance, we tend to forget the lessons of the past and we start, start to follow the desires of our hearts. And God knew that Israel would be tempted to enter alliance with Egypt by acquiring their horses, much like the international trade laws and advanced arms deals of our world today. It was God's desire that Israel would not get entangled again with Egypt. It was God's desire that Israel would understand. They tried to enslave you the last time they'll try to enslave you again this time it might not be with change but it may be a financial enslavement it may be a debt enslavement and i do not want you getting entangled again with egypt so i need you to understand something i know they have the best horses over there but i'm your god and i'm your protector and i fight for you and i don't want you to get involved in that you don't need the horses You don't need their whole hallelujah. i got to pause here for just a little bit and remind somebody, Egypt is a type of the world in the Scripture. And if you're in this place today and God delivered you from the world already, but now there's some sort of enticement trying to pull you back in, some sort of thing trying to get your attention, I remind you today that Egypt is the same today as they've always been. The world today is the same as it's always been. You're not going to get out without a price. Uh, Turn your back on Egypt and look. full in the face of the loving God of heaven and say, I know God's got my back. Oh, hallelujah. I have to be honest today. I'm thankful for our nation and I am thankful for the defense of our nation, but I am not relying upon the defense of our nation. Amen. I'm not trusting. I don't go to bed tonight with peace in my heart because I know there's a defense of our nation. I go to bed tonight at peace because I know I have a God. Oh, hallelujah. That doesn't take away anything from the people that are serving even right now. And I'm thankful for what they do to protect this land. But I'm talking about the one who protects my soul. And I go to bed at night with peace that my soul is in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no weapon formed against me that is going to prosper. Why? Because I got the name of Jesus upon me. And I've been filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he tells them, do not multiply horses upon yourself. He's not saying, I want you to be weak. He's not saying, I want you to be always on foot. He's saying, I want you to remember, I fight for you. Because if you get horses, then you're going to need horsemen. And the horsemen are then going to become heroes. And everybody's going to celebrate how great they are when the battles are won. Oh, hallelujah. Because it wasn't just about the horses. Somebody say it's not just about the horses. He wanted to separate Israel from Egypt over the concerns that they would be infected with the idolatries of Egypt to which they were very prone. He understood that it would be the horses that got them to Egypt but it would be the idolatry that eventually destroyed them. It wasn't just about the horses. It was about what Egypt represented. He says, I don't want you to return to Egypt or trade with Egypt in any form. And this was maintained until we get to the reign of Solomon. Solomon knew better. He wrote in Proverbs 21 and 31, The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. He knew better. He understood he was supposed to trust in God and God alone, but he did not obey this command. In 1 Kings 10 and 26, and Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. Verses 28 through 29, Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price, and the chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so for all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria did they bring them out by their means. Solomon forgot or disobeyed what God had said, he wanted horses. He wanted horses. Did he want horses because other people had horses? Did he want horses because suddenly he didn't feel as protected? Did he want horses because now he felt like his kingdom had become so big that he needed horses? Does it get too big for God? Does it get too big for God? Are we okay with letting God be in control? When everything is just junk and crumbles and falling apart, but then when we really get our lives established and we're really doing something, do we no longer need God anymore? By the end of his reign, not only did he have many horses, but far, far worse. Listen to me as I read to you, first King's 11. But King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, ye shall not go into them, God had said. Neither shall they come into you, God said. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. This is what he's saying. Don't go because you go. And then you give your heart. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. It was so supposed to just be about horses. It was supposed to be just about the defense of God's people. And now his heart has been turned over to sinfulness, idolatry, adultery. Turned his heart, for it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, an abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all the strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon. Because his heart was turned. The Lord was angry with them because his heart was turned. This son of David, this wisest king that ever lived, the one who did everything right when it was his turn to step into power, the one who did everything right when he offered up the sacrifices and worship unto God and the glory of God came down and filled the temple. The one who was doing everything right, but now he wants some horses. And horses bring them back to Egypt. And Egypt brings about idolatry. And now he's building idols and offering up worship to idols when he knows the one true God. His heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing. God hadn't been quiet with him. God hadn't disconnected from him. God hadn't just turned his back and Solomon got off track and God was surprised by it. No. The Bible says that God had shown himself to Solomon at least twice and talked to him about this very thing. I wonder today how many of us sit in this place actively involved in or actively thinking about getting involved in something that we know is not of God. And we know it is not righteous and we know it is not holy. And God himself is repeatedly getting in our face and saying, don't do it. Don't go that way. Don't make that decision. That's a bad idea. It's not going to work out the way you think it's going to work out. It's not going to end up good. And we do not listen to him. Oh, man, we were jumping and shouting earlier, weren't we? Pastor, why couldn't you have just ended it like 10 minutes ago? (laughs) You got all day to recover. Calm down. God appeared unto him twice, commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Because... Once you start breaking one command, what's going to keep you from breaking the next? Are we learning anything in America? Are we learning anything in this God-blessed nation? that the moment you say no to one commandment, you automatically open the door to every type of sin and evil that man can come up with. You can put your stamp of approval on something that God finds an abomination if you want to, and you think, well, that's as far as it's going to go, but you are misrepresenting humanity and how we have always been in our sinfulness. There is no limits to what sin will do if you open up the door but if we'll keep our eyes on Jesus if we'll turn our back on this sinful world and say I heard the voice of the Lord and he told me he would fight for me he told me he would have my back he told me that everything was gonna be all right so I'm gonna trust in the Lord we may not always see why God tells us to disconnect Stay away or leave behind some things. But the lesson is clear God knows what He is doing. I wish you'd look your neighbor right in the eye and tell him right now, God knows what He's doing. God tells us to trust Him, He makes the point clearly and repeatedly. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Second Chronicles 20, ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O oh, Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Deuteronomy 24, for the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Verse 22 of chapter 3, ye shall not fear them for the Lord your God he shall fight for you Isaiah 54 17 no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and the righteousness is of me saith the Lord Psalm 34 17 the righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all of their troubles Deuteronomy 1 30, the Lord your God which goeth before you he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes Romans eight thirty one. what shall we then say to these things if God be for us who can be against us if God be for us, uh, who can be against us? Uh, that's what I have to say. I'm not looking for man. I'm not looking for horses. Uh, I'm not looking for protect myself. I'm not relying on humanity. I've got my eyes on Jesus. Because if God is for me, who could be against me? Oh, I wish everybody would clap your hands and shout unto the Lord today. Come on, this is how you fight the good fight. This is how you fight the good fight. You don't need more horses. You don't need more soldiers. You need more Jesus. You need more prayer. You need more of his word. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We must learn the difference between God's fight and our fight. Paul lists for Timothy some things that we are fighting for. In 1 Timothy 6, But thou, O man of God, flee these things, but follow after righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience and meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called and hast professed a good profession among many witnesses. He says there are some things that we are supposed to fight for. Paul would later declare over his own life in 2 Timothy 4, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Oh, hallelujah. Now, I know you could teach a 10-part series on that phrase, kept the faith, but let me just jump in the shallow into the pool for just a second and just say this. He kept the faith the faith in God, the faith that God was going to be there, the faith that God was going to hear his prayer, the faith that God was going to fight for him, the faith that, oh hallelujah, I kept the faith. I didn't look to man. I didn't sell my soul. I didn't go build up my army. I kept the faith. Hallelujah. I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day and not to me only but to unto all of them also that love his appearing Paul was fighting for a different kind of crown oh hallelujah I said he was fighting for a different type of crown it wasn't about a land grab he wasn't trying to expand his territory he was looking for a city Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. He was looking for a heavenly city. It wasn't about gaining more on this earth. It wasn't about planting the flag and declaring human victory. He was living and fighting for a crown of righteousness. Only the Lord, the righteous judge, can give a crown like that. Oh, hallelujah. You know what I'm saying? A crown of righteousness... There is no human being that can give you that crown. There is no territory you can conquer and take that crown off another king's head and put it on your own head. It does not exist on this earth, but there is a crown of righteousness that is worth fighting for that exists in heavenly places, and only God, the righteous judge, is able to give it. There is no crown. No victory on this earth in our humanity that will ever compare to that first day of glory in eternity. Oh, hallelujah. There is nothing I can fight for in this earth that will even come close, even if I win it, that will even come close to the glory of heaven. So why would I sell my soul? Oh, hallelujah. Why would I sell out? Or why would I try to find my own empowerment and my own self for something on this earth? Hallelujah. Most of the fighting that we are asked to do involves our own flesh It involves our own flesh. He says righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, the good fight of faith. These are battles within our own selves. This is about bringing ourselves under subjection. You see what I'm saying? There's our fight, and then there's God's fight. And I'm just going to tell you what we tend to do. We tend to try to involve ourselves in God's fight and keep ourselves busy in God's fight, which we're not even supposed to be involved in. And we do it so that we don't have to do our fight. We try to get ourselves so wrapped up and busy in the things that only God can do because we don't want to think about the things we're supposed to be doing. We spend time looking for an enemy when we should be looking at the man in the mirror. The British were defeated mostly because America refused to fight on their terms. Satan is defeated when we stop letting him dictate the terms. We stop letting him manipulate, deceive, and trick us into fighting in our flesh battles that can only be won in the spirit. Oh, hallelujah. I don't go toe-to-toe with Satan. I know there's a lot of terminology we use, and sometimes us preachers can get a little flowery. (laughs) It's a nice way to say it. I'm talking to myself. I get it. I take it. But i got to tell you today, I don't go toe-to-toe with Satan. I don't need to. God deals with that. Oh, hallelujah. I said God deals with him. Lucifer, the archangel in heaven, opposes God and tries to usurp God's authority. God kicks him out of heaven. Just kicks them out of heaven. Satan establishes evil on the earth, roaming around like a lion to and fro. God robes himself in flesh, dies on the cross, and conquers death, hell, and the grave. Yeah. Ephesians calls Satan the prince and the power of the air. But we read that one of these days the trumpet of God is going to sound. In First Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Oh, I don't know. I'm not making a doctrine out of it. But it sure sounds cool. Every time Satan tries to do something he's not supposed to do, God just kicks him out. And when he goes to a new place, he tries to do something he's not supposed to do. God comes down and kicks him out of there too. And now he's the prince of power of the air. But one of these days, God kicks him out of there too. And then in Revelation 20, I saw an angel come down from heaven having a key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nation no more till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And when that's not done completely, Revelation 20 and 10 finally says, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever I do not go toe to toe with the devil that's God's fight he snaps his fingers and it's over he says the word and it's done oh hallelujah Oh, hallelujah. So I don't waste my time trying to defeat Satan, but I look at myself and I bring myself under subjection and I bring myself into submission and I say, you are the God of my life and I will trust you that you are going to fight for me, that you are going to have my back. Come on, Solomon. Forget about the horses. Get back to the altar. Forget about the horses. Get back to sacrifice. Forget about the horses. Get back to the good fight. Get back to the good fight. Hallelujah. 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 Satan is a routine loser a snake with a fatal wound in his head. Stop letting him convince you that you are doomed to defeat. Stop letting him trick you into fighting on his terms. He'll have you running all over the place. He'll have you twisted up. He'll have you tied up in knots. He'll have you confused, feeling forsaken and alone. He'll have you believing that God is nowhere near you, that you're all by yourself standing alone on a battlefield with hails of bullets and cannon fire exploding all around you, and you are hopeless and helpless, and nothing could be farther from the truth. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies? Deuteronomy 20 and you see horses, and you see chariots, and you see a people that are more than you, be not afraid of them. Be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with you, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be when you come nigh unto the battle, the priests will approach and speak unto you, and you will hear. They will say, Hear, O Israel, you approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint. Fear not, and do not tremble. Neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is He that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you Psalm 20 and 7 some trust in chariots some trust in horses but we will remember the name of the Lord our God stand with me if you would today please trust in chariots. Some put their trust in horses, but not us. Not me. We remember the name. Oh, hallelujah. We remember the name. What's that name? We remember the name of the Lord our God. So it sounds like I have a choice today. It sounds like we have a choice today, brothers and sisters. Sounds like we have a choice. We can look to the world and think that somehow, if we all just really work together, we could fix it. Or we can look to Jesus, who's never lost a battle, he's never come up short, he's always successful. To those who fight the good fight, keep the faith. Right where you are for just a minute, nobody moving yet, would you close your eyes and lift a hand or both hands towards heaven? Would you just begin to call upon?